as I've said over the, uh, I don't know, maybe the last nine weeks or so as we've been going through 2 Corinthians, um, this is not the first letter to them. It's really the fourth. Uh, and he had already told them uh, in the third letter that uh, there was an issue that they had and to believe these false apostles that had come, had come in. And so he knew that the relationship was a little bit different between he and the Corinthians. And so he wrote this letter knowing that he was going to go there. And he wanted this fourth letter, 2 Corinthians, to kind of uh, be the thing that goes ahead of him, to prepare their hearts to be able to hear from him whenever he came to them face to face. And this particular letter is really kind of divided into three major sections. Chapters 1 through 7 is where Paul talks about the reconciliation that's needed between he and the Corinthians, and he's seeking to repair that relationship, as well as defend his apostolic authority. Like, those people that came in and said wrong things about me, they are wrong. I, I'm Paul the Apostle, and so you should, you should not listen to them and their false teachings, but instead listen to what I have to say because I'm teaching you the true, true teachings of Christ, etc. And that's chapters 1 through 7. Chapters 8 and 9, he's going to talk about generosity because he's taken up an offering to take back to Jerusalem. Uh, and then chapters 10 through 11 are his, his final kind of closing remarks. So we're in that first section there in chapters 1 through 7. And so uh, as we've been going through all of these weeks, he's had a progression that's brought us up to here. At first, he talked about the need for comfort because he knew that there was a little bit of difference between, or a little friction between them, the need for reconciliation and forgiveness. And as he's talking about that, he's talking, started defending his own ministry, and he talked about what's needed to be a competent minister. He talks about, uh, as a competent minister, we're of the gospel, and so there's some times where he talked about what the gospel is, uh, and he talked about using us, uh, jars of clay, to go and to minister to people and the changes that will one day come, which we looked at last week, in our glorified body and the fact that we will receive that glorified body actually changes ministry for today, which brings us back into where we are uh, here at starting at verse 11. And so in verse 11, he is <clears throat> going to reach back at, in verses 11 through 13, reach back to his original reason for writing. And then after that, he's going to continue in the idea of why we're ambassadors. So I'll I'll give you kind of the theological outline of 11 through 21. This isn't the sermon notes, but this is kind of the theological outline. You can go ahead and put up that first slide just of what's going on here in 11 through 21. So uh, in 11 through 21, uh, this is kind of the the two-part outline of what's going on. In verses 11 through 13, you can see that Paul is making another self-defense of himself. So really, uh, this is a restatement of chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. In chapter 1, 12 through 14, Paul talks about why he's writing this letter, and he's restating it in so many words again here. He's just looking back at chapter 1, 12 through 13, and just restating it again. And after he does that, he's going to go into the need for us to be ambassadors for Christ in 14 through 21. And as he does that, how we are ambassadors, how we are going to... Given this task of going and persuading others to come to know Christ, he's going to do that in a two-pronged effort. First, uh, you can see right there in verse uh, 17, I'm sorry, 14, where he says, For the love of Christ controls us. And so from 14 to 17, it has this very Christological-centric focus of reconciliation. When he talks about the love of Christ controlling us, he talks about what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And then he's talking about how we uh, we once regarded Christ this way. And then he goes in 17, if anyone is in Christ. So there's a very Christological focus on the fact that we are now ambassadors for Christ. And then in 18... um, He's not going to stop talking about God because you talk about God when you talk about Christ. He's just lifting it up a little bit and talking about the Trinity, uh, starting at verse 18, where it says, all this is from God. So it switches from a Christological focus to a theological 
focused or a theocentric focus of reconciliation where you can see in verse 18, all this is from God. And then he starts talking about how God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That'll be next week. Uh, I'm just going to be able to get to 17 because I had way too many notes anyway. Uh, So uh, that's kind of the the theological outline. But we're just going to do verses 11 through 17 today. And as we're looking at verses 11 through 17, um, I am, as I said, particularly uh, excited about verses 11 through 17 because of the Christ-centeredness of, of these verses, the, the God-centeredness of God in these verses. And hopefully, as we see these, they overflow. These particular verses overflow with so much good news of the gospel that it should bring us to tears, th- being thankful for what God has done for us, but also simultaneously cause us to leap for joy that he's done this for us. And I just want to remind us all, because I say this Maybe every other week, hopefully every week, every week um, when, when I say you need to hear the gospel, this is not the message for unbelievers only. The gospel is not something that unbelievers need to hear to get saved exclusively. The gospel is also the message that believers need to hear every single week to remind themselves of the justification that they have, that Christ has done all, so that we never revert back to law-keeping to think that we have to have a right relationship with God. And so when I say these verses done for us on the cross with the good news of the gospel, i.e. the objective facts of what Christ has done for us on the cross, that is great news for us to hear. You need to hear this not just every week, every day. You need to hear this message. You should tell yourself this message every day as you read the word. Here is what Christ has done for me. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do, Fud. Tell me what Christ has done. That's what you should every week in your heart and mind be saying to yourself. I, I, I don't mind application, Fud. It's fine for you to let me know. But first tell me what Christ has done for me so that I can walk forward and worship, not walk forward in some kind of legalistic mind frame that thinks God's going to finally be happy if I do this. So that's what these verses are, are soaked with, and I'm, so I'm, I'm excited. So as I said, um, verses 13 through 15 that we're going to start with, I'm sorry, not ver- verses 11 through 13 are really hearkening back to the main point of the book. So if you want to, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, he says, For our boast is this, this testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing um, to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus you will boast uh, you will boast of us just as we will boast of you. So what he's saying is, our relationship has been frayed, but I want for the, the good news of the gospel to repair our relationship so that one day when we stand before heaven, we will say, I will boast of him, we will boast of you, and I will boast of you, not in a way that's for our glory, but for the fact that look what Christ has done, how he's reconciled us, because we've been reconciled to God, we've been reconciled to each other, and we look at the Lord and we say, look at what you've done with me and my fellow man. And so this is Paul saying, that's why I want to uh, come to you again to have this happen with us. So in verse, starting here in verse 11, therefore, knowing that the fear of the Lord persuades up, we persuade others, but we, but what we are known is to God. And I hope that uh, also known to your consciences, I hope that you know what's going on. We're not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you calls that you can see the same language to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in our heart. For we are beside ourselves as for God, but for in our right mind, it's for you. So he's restating his apostolic position and restating the reason why he wrote and why he wants them to come together. Now, here's what I want us to make sure we hear. So 
we see this, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, the therefore is based on what we talked about in verses 1 through 10, this glorified body that we're going to receive. Um, but the very last verse of that section, verses 1 through 10, you can rem- if you remember, he said, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of God. And so this therefore can be since then. So since then we know that Christ, in verse 11, since then we know that Christ is going to sit on his judgment seat and judge others. In other words, we know that Christ is going to um, separate those who are unbelievers and believers. Since that's the case, look at verse 11. Since that's the case, knowing the fear of the Lord, here it is. We persuade others. Those three words are the, are the central theme to help us understand what Paul is going to try to unpack for us. As he unpacks the gospel, he wants you to realize that we persuade others is the reason why. And so the, the, the title of the sermon you can see is Reasons to Persuade. We haven't even gotten to number one, I'm sorry. Um, but So we're, we're still at the, uh, the reasons to persuade others. We know that the coming of Christ, judgment of Christ is real. We see it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically in verse 10. Jesus himself talks about it. If you want to look over at it in Matthew 25, verse 46, there's, there's lots of, actually the whole pericope is verses 31 through 46. But in 46, he says this, as he ends, Jesus ends his teaching on the coming judgment one day. He ends it by saying this, and this just, verse 46 in Matthew 25 destroys annihilationism. Annihilationism is the view that whenever you die, you just are annihilated and you don't have to spend eternal conscious torment forever. You just, you just go into oblivion and there's no such thing as eternal punishment. Um, and so if we as Christians believe in eternal life, we, we wouldn't say that eternal life has some kind of short ending, right? We don't, we'd spend some time with Jesus and then it's just all over. We go to nothingness, like the end of loss, you know, great series until the very end. It's like, go to the next thing. Like, thanks a lot, lost. Wasted six seasons. But anyway, so we don't believe that, right? In verse 46, if we believe in eternal life forever, this is what Jesus says in verse Matthew 25, 46. And these will go into a, go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in the same verse, Jesus is acknowledged. If you believe in eternal life, then there's also eternal punishment. Well, how, how's that fair? Why is it fair that God would give eternal punishment to a sinner? Well, because he's eternal. And so any affront to him, any sin against him, carries with it the weight of who he is. So eternal life, eternal punishment. So we know verse 46 is the case. Jesus tells us that. So back over here. So since we know that Christ is going to sit on his judgment seat, and for all who are in Christ receive eternal life, and all who are not, then since we're here, we live in earth, and we have 75, 85 years until it's there. There's people all around us that don't know Christ. We are absolutely um, dominated by the thought that we should, we persuade others. We persuade. Persuade is patho. This is uh, persuading someone of the truth. Persuading someone of the truth. Garland says persuasion is necessary to convince others of the truth of this paradoxical 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 gospel and win them to God. Yes, regeneration is necessary. God has to regenerate their hearts. But so is, on the human side, our persuasion. We preach the gospel to them. God comes in behind that and says, let light shine out of darkness, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and then they're regenerated. But we, on our earthly side, know that the primary work of the horizontal work of reconciliation um, is the Great Commission. We are 
to be those who go and persuade others. We persuade people to believe the gospel. Jude 1.3 states, we contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So we must remember that persuading people, we are seeking them to trust in Christ. Believe in the good news of the gospel. We're not seeking them to experience uh, some kind of mystical uh, experience we are instead trust, asking them to use truth from the word and reason that God has given them. And we persuade them through logical arguments, um, history and truth, God's word, appealing to their conscience what they know to be true because God has given them a mind to think and a heart to receive the good news. We persuade others. And we're not calling them to a mystical experience. We're calling them to trust in the gospel which has been once and delivered to us uh, for all time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 5. For I delivered to you what is of first importance and what I also received, that Christ died. This, this is the gospel, that Christ died according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared. He appeared to Cephas and the 12 and keep going and to 500. This These are the objective truths of the gospel. When you say, I I want to share the gospel, this is what we share. You can share your personal testimony. That's great. You can share it. But every religion can share their personal testimony. And so we, we don't persuade others with our personal testimony alone. We persuade others with the gospel. And so this is the message we share. And so Paul and we... Trust in the merits of the gospel to persuade other. As paradoxical and as scandalous as that is, um, the gospel must pass the honest scrutiny of a skeptic and allow its hearers to decide for themselves, is this true? But we're not asking them to believe in mystical experiences instead of the good news of the gospel, which is why second, we're going to get to next week, 520 says, it's God making his appeal through us. 520, literally God making his appeal through through us, as we persuade, God is making his appeal through us. And so, in verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of persuade, knowing the fear of the Lord. So you can finally put up number one. We persuade others out of reverence for the Lord. So we see, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What's, why should you be convinced in persuasion? I'm going to give you six reasons from the text. Six reasons why you should finally take up the task of trying to persuade others. Number one, out of reverence for the Lord. This fear of the Lord, this, this, this is reverence or awe or respect. It's not dread. It's not terror. This is referring to the position the believer has before the Lord. We have reverence, awe, and respect. The unbeliever might have dread and terror, but the believer does not have dread and terror. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have awe and respect and wonder. And so Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And so the fear of the Lord relates to Paul's conviction that one day everybody will stand before God, and we will too. And this drives us then, therefore, to go and persuade others. Garland says, fear refers to a religious consciousness, a reverential awe of God that directs the way one lives. Paul does not live in an unhealthy dread of God's judgment because he knows the love of Christ who gave himself for him. And if you're in Christ, you know this. And so out of that reverential awe and love of Christ, that um, drives you to go and be the kind of person that wants to persuade others. And you can see in 11b, 
but what we are known is to God, and I hope it is known to you, to your consciences. As, uh, God knows who we are. God knows who we are, as in Paul and, and the, the other people that were in Corinth. There were, there's false teachers said things about us, but Corinthians, you know who we are, not what those false teachers said. And I'm hoping that by now, as he says, your consciences also know who we are, not what those false teachers said, but that who we are. One writer says, looking at that, says, Paul's hope in writing this letter is that they will finally recognize that he serves them, not himself, and that he wishes to exalt them before God, not himself, and that his bold admonishments are all part of his ministry to get them to accept God's reconciliation so that they may stand with Paul acquitted before God. They need to examine their own consciences and question whether their own lives are governed by the fear of the Lord. This is what he's admonishing those Corinthian, church, those Corinthian goers to, go, to, to understand. And therefore, this is for us. We persuade others because we have reverence for the Lord. That's the first reason that you should go and persuade others. There's also a second reason in verse 12. Look at it. We are not commending ourselves uh, to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. All right, so it's a lot. So here's what, I, here, let me go ahead and put it up. Let me put it up for me. The second reason you should persuade others. We persuade others for the sake of unity in the church. There was disunity in Corinth. There was disunity. People had lied about Paul. They believed the liars. Paul rebukes them. He knows there's reconciliation. There's disunity all over the place. And he's saying, we persuade others for the sake of unity. And you're like, okay, wait, what? How does that work? (laughs) How is persuading others going to do that? Paul is persuading them or trying to change their mind in the way that they think so that they won't think, we don't believe Paul is a good guy, but instead... What Paul says is one day we'll stand before the Lord and we'll boast of each other. That's a pretty massive transformation that's going to happen. Standing before Jesus saying, we boast of Paul. Paul says, we boast of them. That's a huge move for them. And so Paul wants that to happen. And in order for that to happen, he's saying, I'm giving you cause to boast about us. On the day of the Lord, I want you to boast about us. Now, this is interesting language, and it may sound troublesome to the 21st century here because we're talking about boasting. Boasting isn't this braggadocious, humble brag kind of thing to the first century here like it is to us. For him, when he hears this word boasting, think of it more as uh, start now thinking and speaking well of. That's what I want. I want you Corinthians to start now thinking correctly about who I am and what the truth of the gospel is and what I'm saying and speaking well of me. And Paul is helping them to boast or have confidence in his spiritual integrity. That's bringing unity in disunity. And so I'm persuading you Corinthians to the truth of what's going on here. And one of the outcomes of that is we now have unity instead of disunity. So we persuade others for the sake of unity. Whenever there's disunity and someone's thinking wrong theologically, we go to them to persuade them of the truth of the gospel to restore unity. And this is what Paul's trying to say. Uh, People have come in behind Paul. They've trashed him as an apostle. They've trashed him as a pastor. They maligned his character. And Paul is one in the Corinthian church to understand that these things that are said are not true, that the thoughts of Paul are not true, and their thoughts of Paul should be changed and transformed. And the Corinthians can have their their thoughts changed and transformed, and this will serve again to unify the Corinthian church again. 
trashing church leaders does not bring unity. Um, John MacArthur in his commentary says, The church's unity, which is so precious to the apostle, would be shattered. Nothing would split a church faster than the attacks of the reputation on its leaders. And so I'm coming to persuade to you to restore in our church, church unity. That's what he's trying to say. And then he says, outward appearance uh, and not about what's in the heart. You can see that in verse 12. Uh, this is a, a, a little bit of a, a recall back to 1 Samuel 16, 7, where it says the Lord looks not at the outward, outward appearance, but at the heart. When he's talking about David being called. Uh, so that you may be able to understand those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. So this, in, in, in context in verse 12, the detractors, the false teachers that had come in, um, they had the ear of the Corinthians and they were dreadfully looking at the outward appearances. They, poured out, they, they pointed out Paul's outward appearance and thinking that mattered. And so, meaning they saw that Paul was physically suffering for the gospel for his outward sufferings and they assumed Paul's suffering, therefore God's chastising him. They're looking at outward appearances, and Paul's like, wrong. You're looking at outward appearances, but you're not looking at the heart. You, these false Christians were, false apostles were defrauding the Corinthian church by saying, surely that suffering means that God doesn't like him. And Paul destroys this entire outward appearance thought in chapter 4. That's the whole point. Yes, I'm suffering because I'm a jar of clay. God's using me, and every one of us are, should be experiencing suffering, not because God's chastising, because this body is, is falling apart anyway, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. Thank the Lord we have our glorified body. So Paul actually takes their, their rebuke of what he, what, what he is and turns it into what's actually the right way to think. And he's saying, you're, you're looking at this all wrong. As, as Garland says, when Paul writes about the glory of the gospel and his ministry, having treasures in jars of clay and living by be used to promise that a glory beyond all measure awaits for those who die, these things can be used to counter anyone whose judgments are confounded because of the spurious worldly values, whether they are members of congregation, meddling guests, or malicious outsiders. Those people that came in say that I look this way because God's chastising me. No, I look this way because I'm obeying God. And obeying God by persuading others has brought on the suffering. God is not upset with me. As 2 Samuel 7, 17, 6, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Of course, the Apostle Paul, of course, knows this text, which is why he brings it in in this particular point. And he's teaching the Corinthian church. These false, to teach, these false accusers boast in outward appearances what's external, what's superficial, what's transitory. What they should focus on is the heart. What's internal, what's essential, what is eternal. And the Corinthians and we, the Corinthians church who were wrongly persuaded and we, should make judgments from the Spirit's vantage point rather than looking at earthly things like status, worldly honor, and physical appearance. We should look at things from the Spirit's vantage point. Which means, and they can call, tie this point two up into a bow for application. When false teachers arise... And they can cause major dissensions in churches. The worst thing that we can do is to ignore it. Instead, with the word of God, we persuade each other with sound biblical teaching, truth from the Bible for the sake of church unity. For the sake of church unity, we provide scriptures over and over, persuading them with sound theological teaching. And someone is an error in their understanding. Uh, we should not dig in the false way of thinking, but instead uh, want them to have a soft heart. And if you have 
wrong thinking, want you to have a soft heart to the word of God and adjust our thinking to the word of God because it is the measure. And so um, then we will be like Paul and the Corinthians fighting against dissension, fighting against disunity in the church and begin to always think well and speak well of each other. That's what this word means, is to speak well and think well of each other. We're talking about boasting. Then we can boast on each other. We can think well and speak well of each other. So that's the second reason we persuade, is because it actually brings to us church unity. Verse 13 tells us the third one. We persuade others because being devoted to the truth benefits others in the church. Being devoted to the truth benefits others in the church. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, or some translations might say, if we're out of our mind, uh, exist to me, if we are out of our mind, it's for God. But if we are in our right mind, it's for you. Now, we're going to concentrate on that second half because that's the point that's making uh, the reason why we should persuade. I'll talk about the first half for just a second because it is an interesting text and a lot of people go a lot of ways on if we are out of our mind, it's for God. Basically, Paul is saying that if he does things and says things that are always true, mind you, they're true, but if he does things and says things that don't make sense to the Corinthian church, those things are for God. They're not for you. They're for God. Um, hence, verse 12, God looks at the heart. They're for God. So if you hearken back to 1 Corinthians, commentators say perhaps he's talking about the third heaven. Perhaps he's talking about some other things in the 1 Corinthians letter that they just don't even know what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> and he says, if I'm doing things you don't understand, that's for God anyway. Don't worry about it. End of discussion on 13a because it could take three hours. 13b is the point, right? Here's 13b. And this is what actually matters to the sermon is this. If we are in our right mind or mental sobriety, if we are saying coherent things that make sense, not things that confuse you, if we are in our right mind stating true things that make sense to you, and then he says, it is for you. It is for you. When Paul is saying and doing things that are of their right mind, they sound correct. It's for their benefit. Um, they did hear serious exposition of the gospel um, whenever Paul was with them. They heard Paul preach Christ, and it redounded to their spiritual prophet. And he's saying when that happens, the point is, when the hearers of God specifically hear the good news of the cross, what Christ has done for you, then it is for your benefit. So um, we persuade others because being devoted to truth benefits others in the truth. When we are devoted to the truth, it benefits others. So we persuade others to believe what's true because it benefits the entire church. If Paul's to boast, he will boast in the Lord, Second Corinthians. So here's what I mean. Let, let, me, let me give you a, a bottom line application for, for number three here. When we persuade others, we're devoted to, being devoted to the truth actually benefits others in the tr tr church. That's why we, we persuade. Bottom line, think about your personal devotion to the truth. Think about your personal devotion to the word of God. How much or how little you put time in studying it and knowing it. How much or how little you put time into meditating on it. How much or how little you put time into memorizing it. 
how much or how little you want to try to understand the good news of the gospel, not just dropping down like a helicopter in one verse, but spreading your arms wide in the context of what's going on in the book, the New Testament, the whole book, and getting a collective thought of the comprehensive narrative of the entire Bible of the good news of the gospel. How much or how little do you do that? Because your devotion to that, it redounds to the benefit of the others in the church. The more that you know the good news, the more that you can speak comprehensively in your community groups or on Sunday mornings about the good news of the gospel. And when you do that, how you study um, then helps you persuade others to think rightly about God and it increases the faith of others in Jesus Christ. It increases their devotion to want to follow him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your understanding of the word matters to everyone. You persuade others. We persuade others because being devoted to the truth of the word benefits everybody in the church. That's what he's saying. Learning to be in your right mind or thinking correctly, studying correctly, knowing the benefit is for the benefit not just of your own personal walk, but other people with real study and real sharing in our context, mostly probably in your community group where you get to talk about the good news of the gospel um, the most. You can have your coffees at Starbucks or whatever also. Um, I think Corona's over. It feels like it's over, right? I think we can meet in, star- in, in coffee shops now. Um, at least you can go to uh, downtown Starbucks. They make you walk the little aisle and you get out of there. Anyway, I just went this week. Um, so it will prove to be a tremendous asset in the life of the church the more that we know the word. Because when we know the word and we're devoted to truth, it actually benefits the, it benefits the whole church. So... It redounds to the benefit of the rest of the church. That's verses 11 through 13. Now, you can see how that's very centric. Verses 11 through 13, those first three persuasions, has very centric to the whole point of what Paul is trying to do in the hearts of the Corinthians, right? He's defending his apostolic position. He's defending uh, himself against the false apostles. Those three first three persuasions will feel that way. What we're going to do now is move from the, Paul's self-defense in 11 through 13 to his ambassadorship in, as Christ with the Christological focus. We'll do the theocentric focus next week. But now we're going to verse 14. And it's going to shift from, and feel, the first three are going to shift from, we persuade others, uh, where Paul's defending himself to, we persuade others, and it's all about Jesus. So I'm particularly, uh, particularly excited about these next three. All right, so I, for obvious reasons. Because it's all about Jesus. All right, verse 14. You can go ahead and put up number four. We persuade others out of gratitude to the Savior. I know you probably spell Savior without the U, but the only right way to spell it is the British way with the U. And so I always put the British U in there because it makes it look awesome. Um, So uh, why would you not want to give Jesus more letters, right? I don't know. So uh, we persuade others out of gratitude for or to the Savior. That's, That's what he's going to say here in verse 14. Look at what he says. For the love of Christ, the love of Christ, the love of Christ controls us, compels us, whatever your translation, but let's talk about that for a second. The love of Christ. We, this is when we say gratitude for the Savior. It's the love of Christ given to us. And because he loves us, I feel gratitude towards him. For the love of Christ. This is the deep, amazing love that Paul writes about in other texts so eloquently that Jesus has for us. So um, I'm going to give a non-Pauline uh, text and then two Pauline texts that are specific on the love of Christ. The, one, the first one, the non-Pauline, the Johannine one, you know, right? 
It's at every football game. Four, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is, this is still in the category of the love of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the love of God, the love of Christ that we're talking about. Now Paul expounds on that in two other places, Ephesians 3, Romans 8. And these are beautiful, beautiful um, words to help us wrap our minds around the love of Christ. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. And here it is, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So there's this four-dimensional kind of love that he talks about. And then there's this like passes all that. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Romans 8, in a very similar kind of way. I'm going to read the whole, the whole love section on Romans 8. Uh, instead of just starting at verse 37. I'm going to 31 to 39. Because it's just, why would I not? It's Romans 8. Great 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? For if God is for us... Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, can these things do it? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love, that, so when Paul says the love of Christ, we needed to take a step back and just get what Paul's thinking in his head when he says the love of Christ. That love, this amazing love of Christ, it does what? What does that love do? Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Literally controls us, compels us. Sunecho, the pressure put on something that always produces action. This is what controls, compels. This is what this sunecho, the love of Christ, produces a pressure in a good sense, not a bad sense, in a good sense that causes us to sit for the love of Christ because act. We persuade others out of gratitude for the love of Christ because Christ has loved us. I must act through going and persuading. That's what he's trying to say. John MacArthur, the magnitude of Christ's love for Paul compelled him to serve wholeheartedly as an act of grateful worship. Should do the same for us. Because, for the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded. Also can be translated, because we are convinced The love of Christ literally has put pressure on me so that I must act because I have come to this place where in all everything, I am convinced concluded. This convinced concluded, the conclusion is the bottom line. 
What's the bottom line? It's the brass tacks. It's the final thing that matters. The thing that we are supposed to do here last and remember because it's the most important thing to do. That's why Jesus said it right before he literally ascended into the heavens. The most important thing to do. And Paul says, this is a deep and profound reality for me and it should be for you. Don't forget this. The bottom line is one has died for all. Here it is. For the love of Christ controls us. The thing that dominates my mind is, here it is, one has died for all. That's the good news of the gospel. This is the thing that controls him. The love of Christ has convinced him and made him say, I have to go because I am convinced of this. One has died for all. Jesus has died for all. For is maybe the most important word in this text. For. This is not epi or dia, the, the, the regular fours. No. This is huper, in the place of, on behalf of, for the sake of. Huper, penal substitutionary atonement, is what he's trying to talk about. There was a penalty that had to be, that had to be made. A substitute had to be given. An atonement had to be made. All of that is put into the four. All of this is in there. This is the doctrine at the heart of the gospel of Christianity. It's not a mere feature of the cross. It's the center and core of the entire cross. Penal substitutionary atonement. And this beautiful doctrine is massively under assault right now by deconstructionists of the day. They cannot fathom a God of wrath. They cannot fathom it. They cannot understand why God is angry towards sin. They don't understand this because the, the weight and the filthiness of sin, I don't think, has deeply hit their heart enough. They don't understand just how heinous sin's in. They make, deep, they make ridiculous statements like, I can't worship a God like that. Or, that's not the kind of God for me. Or, I can't believe that's the real God of the Bible. Without realizing how they feel about God is totally irrelevant to the veracity of what Scripture's actually saying about penal substitutionary atonement. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. This had to happen on the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 and 11 through 12. Listen to these very prophetic verses long before Jesus was born as they just ooze penal substitutionary atonement. A penalty had to be paid, a substitution had to be made, and blood had to be shed, there had to be an atonement. Surely he has borne our griefs, substitution, and carried our sorrows, yet we estreamed him stricken, atonement, smitten by God, substitution. He was pierced for our transgressions, penalty and substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities, penalty and substitution. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed, substitution, atonement. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Penal substitutionary atonement. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is wrath talk. This is substitutionary atonement. This is propitiation happening. And by his knowledge shall all the righteousness want, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. Substitution. And they shall bear the iniquity, substitution, atonement. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered along with the transgressors. Penal, atonement. 
He bore the sins of many, penal substitutionary atonement, and makes intercession for transgressors. This is years before Jesus was born. And Paul sees that text. Paul sees and understands what Christ has done and writes this down in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, i.e. we just read the prophets, Isaiah 53. The righteousness of God through faith in God and earth is for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it is, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Hilasterion. Hilasterion. By his blood to be received by faith. A sin offering by which the wrath of God will be appeased. A means of propitiating the wrath of God. The wrath of God had to be appeased. And on the cross, Jesus bore the full wrath of God for us. I would say at hour three to hour six when it got dark until he said, it's finished. He he decided when he died, I have taken on all the sin of the world and the wrath of God towards that. And now it's over. Who pair? Who pair in the place of, on behalf of, for the sake of us? Jesus stood in the place of God's wrath for us. Next week we'll exegete this text, but that's what verse 21 is all about. For he, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's penal substitutionary atonement. I don't want to give away what I'm going to do next week, so I'm just going to tell you it's there, right? And so we have concluded, verse 14, that one has died for all. We need to be con- convinced and understand what Paul means when he says, the love of Christ compels me. Jesus took my place and bore all the full wrath of God. Therefore, I am, I'm compelled by this because of penal substitutionary atonement that I must go persuade others because the wrath of God, 2 Corinthians 5.10, is on them. The final judgment is on them. And therefore, as he says, all have died. And we must count ourselves now as those who have died. Now, we need to be clear here when he's talking about verse 14. Um, when he says, Christ has died for all, therefore all have died. He's warning everybody to be in this place. Now, this all have died is not talking about unbelievers. All have died as unbelievers. In verse 14b, therefore all have died. Christ has died for all. He's clearly talking about Christians. Therefore all Christians have died. He's not talking about pre-Christianity. He's talking about when you get saved. You are to reckon yourself now as dead. So there, there is two categories of this death. We're not talking about the unbeliever's death that, they all, that we all receive in Adam and spiritual death. Um, this is not the spiritual death inherited by Adam. This is a specific message to Christians saying, when you come to Christ, you reckon yourself as dead to yourself and now alive to Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this famous quote. You probably heard it, but he sums it up this way. The cross is laid on every Christian. When you get saved, the cross is laid on every Christian. And here's in the sense he means. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which results of this encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. When we are born into Christ, We count ourselves as dead now to 
in, in Christ. Thus it begins. The cross then is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it instead meets us at the beginning with our communion in Christ. When Christ calls a man, when you're called, he bids him come and die. Paul, of course, says it because he's Paul way better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I live by faith. I'm still alive. Look at me. Ow, that hurt, right? I'm still alive, but I have been crucified with Christ. And so it's no longer I who live. The life I live in the, bo- in the body or the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I count my old man as dead, and now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Paul is convinced of. Death to self in order that we would have life with Christ. And we persuade others out of this gratitude of this gospel that Christ saved us, he died for us, he absorbed all the wrath of God for us, and now we are dead in ourselves so that we can be alive in Christ. That compels me that I must go persuade others. Out of gratitude for that, I have to go and persuade others. One commentator says, Paul was so overwhelmed with the gratitude that the eternal God sent his son to die as a substitute to pay for the penalties of his sins. That marvelous truth left him no room for self-congratulation as if, he needed, as if he had contributed something to his salvation. But Christ's death did not merely put him in a position to be saved. It procured his salvation. From that reality flows reconciliation, justification, forgiveness of sin, peace with God, deliverance from wrath and judgment. Paul desired above all else to live for the one who sovereignly and graciously redeemed him. So through his blood, the apostle defended his ministry so as not to lose an opportunity to show and persuade others to do the same. So what does your gratitude in Christ resemble? What does your persuading of others look like in relation to and the fact that Jesus took your place? Are you so unbelievably grateful that Christ would do that for you that you must you must go persuade others now. That's what the point is. The reason why we persuade is because we can't get over the fact that Jesus died for us and took our place and absorbed the full wrath of God for us so that all we know now is love. Never condemnation ever. All we know now from God who loved us. Now we can love him. All we know now is love. The next one is this, verse 15. Another reason you should persuade is because we don't live for ourselves anymore. Now, just so you realize, number four, persuasion, and number five, they're inextricably linked. Like, that sounds very same, same to four. Okay, it does, because they're inextricably linked. Verse five, or Number five, we persuade others because we are not to live for ourselves anymore. Verse f- f- 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him, for their sake, who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 14 begs the question, what does it mean for uh, that I died? When you count yourself as dead, and when I said in the end of verse 14, when it says, therefore all have died, it, that, that statement begs the question, what does it mean that I've died? Verse 15 answers that question. 
you've died so that you can no longer live to yourself. That's why you died. Those who live, we must stop and consider who exactly Paul is saying this to. Don't miss the, the context, right? Paul's saying this to the Corinthians. The Corinthians. This is the city that has literally turned the verb to Corinthianize into sexual sin and self-indulgence. They all knew this, and he's telling them, the Corinthians, who might be the most self-involved, self-centered people on the planet at that time, next to us um, in America, Paul planted that church in there, and he's telling them, you don't get to live for yourself anymore, self-involved, self-focused person. You don't get to do that anymore. You who are in Christ kill self-centeredness. He's telling the Corinthians that. The verb to Corinthianize literally means to self-indulge in sexual sin as much as you want. It's amazing that Paul is telling the Corinthians this. What is this message that he's telling them? You might no longer live for yourself, but instead for Christ. Here it is. This is the people that Paul is saying this to. You don't live for yourself just like us, just like most people, majorly self You only get to live for Christ now. Give up the old self-centeredness ways. Don't insist on your own way. Go and start persuading others to trust in Christ. That's the message he's telling them. You don't get to live for yourself anymore. We take up the task of persuasion. We take up the task of the ministry of reconciliation. So point number five, we persuade others because we're not allowed to be self-centered anymore because we're in Christ. Last one, verse 16 and 17 together is this. From now on, you go ahead and put up number six. We persuade others because we are deeply burdened for those that do not know Christ. So what he's going to do here is he's going to tell us who we are in Christ. And as we see who we are in Christ in 16 and 17, that means people who aren't in Christ, there's a, there's a description not written but clearly explicit or implicit in the text. From now on, we therefore regard no one according to the flesh. Those who are not in Christ, we should regard according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh... That, that's a big theological rabbit trail. I won't run down too far. Um, we don't regard him that any longer. And here it is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If anyone's not in Christ, he's still the old man. That's terrible. That's terrible. We should be deeply burdened for the people that that's the case, that don't know Christ. Because the old passed away, and that's still the case for them. The news come for us. So from now on, Paul is saying from this point, in verse, from now on, from now on, verse 16, at this point, now that I'm a Christian, we do not regard other Christians anymore according to the flesh. Before they were in Christ, we regarded them as, the fle- as in the flesh. And then he has this rabbit trail verse, and I'll just explain it to you real fast. Basically, Paul is saying, before the Damascus Road, before I knew Jesus, I thought he was just a dude. I, thought, I just thought he was a man. But now that I've come to know Christ, I know I don't regard him and just as according to the flesh anymore. I know he was a man, but he's also God. I believe him to be the Savior. That's the point of the rest of verse 16. And he's saying, now, having said all that, Paul's saying, um, those who are in Christ are new creation. And of course, the contrast means if anyone is not in Christ, he is still the old man. And this truth breaks the heart of Paul. It breaks Paul's heart that there's people that are still in the old man. There are people that do not know him. That's why he writes over and over about how deeply he wants to preach the gospel. Whenever I go there, I want to preach the gospel. Whenever I go there, I want to preach the gospel. And whenever I go there, it's just messed up over there. What do I want to do? I want to preach the gospel. That place over there, it's all messed up. When I get there, you know what I hope I can do? Preach the gospel. He says it over and over. 
He says it twice in the Corinthians 1.17. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire is that I could preach the gospel so that they could be saved. Romans 15.20. I want to go over to a place that no one's ever been to so I can preach the gospel where Christ hadn't been named. Over and over and over, he deeply wants to go to new cities where people don't know Christ and they are totally messed up so that he can preach the gospel. This is the only thing that changes the human heart. And this is what he wants to do. He deeply is burdened that people that don't know Christ would come to know Christ. And the straightforward truth is we need to try to do this hard work of persuading others so that we can um, preach the gospel to them because we should have a deep burden like Paul for people that don't know Christ. Uh, verse 17, it's re- uh, really this verse 17, ver- therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. It's a restatement of verse 15, uh, a beautiful restatement of fi- verse 15. And he says, if anybody that's in Christ, that means they belong to Christ. The, the, the phrase, actually, this, uh, in verse 17 is just four little pithy statements. It's in uh, in Christ, new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. All those extra words are supplied in English. In Greek, it's just in Christ, new creation. Old is gone, new has come. That's all it is. All the extra stuff is there. It's in Christ, the one that belongs to Christ, his sphere of power has been united to him, and he's part of Christ's body. New creation, kinekatissus. You're a new creation, a new man. You have a new heart. Consider this deep gospel truth of you. You have this in you. You are now a new creation. When, because you're a new creation, when sin comes to, comes to tempt you, you say, I don't have to do that. I'm a kinekatissus. I'm a new creation. That doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Whenever there's a, uh, no burden within you to share the gospel, you say, Where's this burden gone? I need it back. I am a new creation, a kinekatissus. You tell yourself over and over. As you wake up this morning, I don't want to read the Bible. I have a, I'm a kinekatissus. I am now a new creation in Christ. That's why I want to read the Bible. That's why I want to share the gospel. That's why I don't want to partake in sin. Because the old is gone. The past is dead. As dead as Christ on the cross. All ideas and all the former hopes, all the wretched ambitions, Dead. That man lives in another universe now. And the new has come. We are now reconciled to this new relationship with God. The new has come. We are a new man. We are a new creation. We have new desires. We have new loves. We have new inclinations. New truths to bask in every day. We are new creations. Even greater, and the best part of all that, we've been um, ushered into the new relationship with God. Enemies, friends. Haters of God, followers of Prince of the Power of the Air, reconciled to God our Father, our Creator, restored. And all we know is love now. Application for number six, we should be deeply burdened that everyone can experience this. So this is why Paul says in Acts 20, 24, I don't account of my life as any value nor as precious to myself, that I may finish the course of the ministry that I received from the Lord just, just test Try it again. That I may finish my course of the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify or preach. The sermon has been unpacking of the reasons why we should preach the gospel. But specifically, those last three are as Christocentric as we can get. We should be desiring to persuade others because God has loved us and we are absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude for the Savior. And 
Now we cannot ever be selfish anymore. We live for ourselves, ourselves. And so now we have this deep burden for other people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that you have given this to us and it shows us the deep desire we should have to go and to persuade others. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for taking the full wrath of God, Jesus, for us on our behalf. Let us never get over that. Let us sing of it. Let us taste it. Let us be nourished by the truth. Let us live in it so that we um, rejoice in the fact that we are now justified. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.